From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. While this isn't a podcast about Notre Dame or Notre Dame faculty specifically, and in fact, many guests will be scholars or professionals from elsewhere, today you will be hearing from Jessica Payne, an associate professor of psychology at Notre Dame who directs the ND Sleep, Stress, and Memory Lab through the university's Department of Psychology. Jessica joined the Notre Dame faculty in 2009 after completing postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard and Harvard Medical School. During our conversation, she and I covered everything from the science of the power nap and a theory she developed about what might be going on when we dream to our evolving understanding of the relationship between sleep, stress, anxiety, and depression. Jessica Payne, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. We're out having brunch, lunch on a Thursday afternoon, so that's, right. that's a good place to Which be. Which is fantastic for me yeah. being on sabbatical. <laughs> so I kind of I've introed a little bit about your research and setting this up, and I wanted to start with, and I, I think I've seen you talk about this before, but what is the biggest misconception people have about what sleep does for our brains? Oh, that's an easy question to answer. So the single biggest misconception is that sleep is a dormant state. So sleep tends to be viewed as a period of inactivity where the brain powers down, similar to the way a computer powers down at night, or anytime you shut your laptop, for instance. So there's there's this idea that once once it's at rest, that it's not doing anything. Maybe it's helping you restore and rejuvenate. If you go out and you ask somebody, just anybody on the street, what is sleep, what's it for, what does it do, they're inevitably going to say something like, oh, well, it's a time where the brain sort of shuts down so it can rejuvenate and restore. But what they don't understand is that nothing could be further from the truth. Sleep is a highly active state, and it's not only active, but if you look at patterns of regional activation in the brain, It's active in the very regions that you want and need it to be active if you're going to do things like learn and remember, if you're going to do things like manage stress and regulate emotions, if you're going to do things like maximize your creative potential and your ability to to innovate. So if I can convince people by showing them the scientific evidence that sleep is a highly active state, then maybe they'll conserve it. Because most people, I think because we're descendants of Puritans, at least in this country, you know, and in Canada, that... It's just a waste of time, right? It's just a waste of time, so let's curtail it. It's also the first thing to go when people get busy, but really, if they can understand that it's actually doing something important for them, they should learn to conserve it. They should learn to be more respectful of it. So I think that the misconception is really that sleep isn't doing anything that's beneficial for your mind or your brain when actually it's making you smarter. If someone comes into your lab and it's the idea of, say you were going to volunteer for a sleep study. Right. What does that look like in a lab if you come in? How do you how do you study sleep beyond just looking at someone while they're sitting there sleeping? Right, which is creepy. So <laughs> we, we actually creepy. don't spend very much time doing that at all. <laughs> so if you were to come into lab, let's say you did, right? right. And actually we're, we're trying to get out of just studying this captive audience of college students. 
one of the things I'm really interested in right now is sleep in middle age. You know, I'm now 44 years old, which feels and seems ancient to me. And I think all of us sort of intuitively know that the habits we develop now are going to predict how we age, both physically and cognitively. So I'm trying to branch out and study other people other than your typical, you know, 18 to 21-year-old. But whoever comes into the lab, you're going to... The first thing that's going to happen is we're going to put electrodes all over your head. Nice. It's actually really (laughs) non-invasive. I mean... We now have, there was this ancient like glue that we used to use that was really impossible to get off. People hated it, but now we have the stuff that comes off really easily. Um, so it's, it, they're attached to your scalp, so there's a little bit of a braiding of the skin, but it's very, it's sort of like a little bit of sandpaper, but just mo- the most minor amount to get the oil off so we can attach these electrodes to the scalp and also to the face so that we can record brain activity okay. throughout the night. And the way we know that you're asleep isn't by looking at you. In fact, somebody can fake being asleep, Sure, right? Some people better than others. All but... of us with young children have done that to be like, oh no, yeah, Danny's not, not, a, Danny's not, not awake, no way. Well, I do it with my cat, which it actually works with. My son is not fooled. Um, but at any rate, so once we see the characteristic brain activity that's usually associated with what's called stage two non-REM sleep. So stage one is the sort of transitional phase, uh, but the brain waves sort of, they slow down and slow down and slow down as you go from active wakefulness to you know, the deepening stages of sleep. And when we see what's called a sleep spindle, which comes from, I guess it's an old sewing term, but it's just like a really fast burst of activation. So, you know, your brain's kind of going along, the neurons are firing, we're recording that, although in a very distant way. And all of a sudden you get these little bursts of activation followed by these big spikes, which are called K-complexes. And then we know definitively, you know, you're asleep, you're in stage two sleep, which is still a really light stage of sleep, incidentally. And some people... If you wake them up after that, they won't even know that they've been sleeping. Mm. Um, and so uh, stage two is an important type of sleep because we know it's important for a lot of different types of cognitive processing. These spindles are actually hallmarks of plasticity in the brain, and plasticity is thought to underlie the brain changes that represent new learning and memories. And, um, and what's important about that stage two sleep is that if you're going to master the power nap, which I think we should all do, we never should have stopped right. in kindergarten, uh, you want to nap pretty briefly, you know, if you're anyway a middle-aged adult. You want to either nap for 90 minutes, which takes you full of, through a full sleep cycle, or you want to keep them real brief, meaning less than 20 minutes, so that you're, when you awaken, you're not in some deep stage of sleep where you're going to be groggy and unproductive. Well, that was one of the most interesting things when I was looking at your research before we came in, and as we were talking beforehand, that we both have young children at home. I think right. as a parent, when you have toddlers or babies... The most glorious thing in the world you can have given to you is like someone say, oh, take a nap. Yes. It's fine. But what you're saying is, unless you have the ability to lie down for that full 90 minutes, right. that you maybe shouldn't just lie down for as long as you possibly can. No, there's can. no question. Because okay. we know that, let's say you take an hour nap, you're going to wake up much more groggy most of the time. And in fact, even 20 minutes is pushing it for some college students because they're so sleep deprived that what, you know, what happens is when you become sleep deprived, there's another type of sleep which is called slow-wave sleep. It's another form of non-rapid eye movement sleep, but it's very deep, very hard to wake out of it. I mean, if you've ever been awakened and you're just, you barely even know what's going on, you barely know who you are, what you are, where you are, you know, somebody, your cell phone rings and you think it's the doorbell, that kind of disorientation, that's due to what's called sleep inertia, and that's real bad after you've been in slow-wave sleep. So the problem with napping really anywhere between about uh, 20 max, 30 minutes, and 90 minutes is you're at real risk of, um, when that alarm goes off, waking up out of slow wave sleep. 
and then you're going to be groggy for a very long period of time. So it's not going to benefit right. your performance or your productivity in the same way that we know brief naps do. And there's no question about that. I think it's one of the most powerful tools we actually have at our disposal if we want to improve performance. So it's not just for new parents, although trust me, <laughs> I know how important that is when you have a, a little one at home. But it's why I'm such an advocate of finding a way to nap even at work. You know, right. and certainly for college students, they can do the 90-minute nap when they really need to. So we talk a lot about napping in my classes, and I work with a lot of different business organizations, everything from, you know, banking to not-for-profits, and we talk a lot about how to strategically sleep to benefit your brain if you're not able to get enough at night. Talking about overnight sleep, I feel like if you, kind of family feud style, you pulled (laughs) a group of 100 adults and said, how much sleep should you get each night? I feel like... 90 out of 100 would say 8 hours. I mm-hmm. feel like that's the thing that was always kind of drilled it's into our heads. Into like, you need right. 8 hours of sleep a night. Is there actually a magic number like that, or is it yeah. kind of all over the map? That's a great question. There's not a magic number like that. 8, it's not a bad thing to strive for, but the problem with it is that 8 is actually an average. So if you look at how much sleep adults need anyway, mm-hmm. it's normally distributed. So that's if you think of the bell curve, that's the normal distribution. It applies to a lot of different human variables in sleep is one of them. Where we get that is that the overwhelming majority of humans need somewhere between seven and nine hours a night. Okay. Very common to find people who are really great. Not, and I want everybody to stop thinking about what can I get by on and rather <laughs> reframe this to think about it in terms of where am I at my best? Mm-hmm. Where do I feel like I'm mentally sharpest? Where do I feel emotionally at my best? And for some people, that's closer to seven. For a lot of people, that's closer to nine. So eight is really an average. So it's not a bad thing to strive for, but there isn't, it's not a magic number. And then, of course, it's extremely rare, but there are people out on the very, very, very tails of the distribution. Now, let me emphasize, this is statistically very rare, but people who really only need four or who actually need 12. But I don't, I mean, I'm at the point where when somebody comes up and says, I think I'm one of your short sleepers, I only need four, I immediately want to study them. And what most of the time happens is they've convinced themselves of that, but you bring them to the lab, you subject them to something called the multiple sleep latency test, which is where you let them, let them just sit in a dim room, you're recording their brain waves, mm-hmm. and, and you look at how fast it takes them to fall asleep. And they're just, you know, how long it takes them to fall asleep, and they fall asleep very quickly. And if you look at their performance, it's usually, you know, poorer than it would be if they were well-rested. So there's this weird thing where we're not very good at at assessing how sleepy we are, which is why a lot of traffic accidents occur. You know, people don't realize that sleep deprivation was a big factor behind the Exxon Valdez disaster, even the Challenger explosion, and we're poor at it. It's, it's similar to alcohol in that way. You know, there's this very convincing relationship between the similarities between the relationship between alcohol and performance and sleep deprivation and performance. And in both cases... Did you want a couple minutes? You want to take a break in order? Yeah, we can order if you want. Yeah. yeah. Rather than make you listen to us order, I thought I'd use this opportunity to tell you that in 2017, Jessica was named a Cavley Frontiers of Science Fellow by the National Academy of Sciences. Cavley Fellows are top young scientists who have already been recognized with prestigious fellowships, awards, and other honors. Some 200 alumni of the program have gone on to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and 12 have won Nobel Prizes. Not a bad brunch companion. So you were talking about kind of the similarities between intoxication and the effect that has and someone being sleep deprived exactly. and how that affects Yeah, and the relationships are very, very similar. In fact, it's not statistically different, but if you look at, it's a negative correlation, and so if you look at sort of how the dots line up, 
in terms of how this relationship bears out between sleep deprivation and performance, it's actually a little tighter of a negative correlation than is the case for um, for alcohol intoxication. But but anyway, the point really is is that they're really similar, and in both cases, people aren't always aware of how intoxicated they are or how sleep-deprived they are. So it's interesting to contemplate, is there maybe a mechanism that those things share in common? I really don't know. But what I do know is that sleep deprivation is very dangerous and people don't, they don't think about it. And part of that's because they're not good at assessing their own levels of sleepiness. So most people who say, oh, I only need four hours, you know, they're just shattered in terms of their performance. They're falling asleep left and right. They have what we call, what we call micro-sleeps. As I've not found one yet. Let's just put it that way. And then when I have people on the other side say, oh, I think I'm one of your long sleepers. I think I need 12 hours. And I'm like, well, why do you say that? They'll often say, because I sleep all the time and I never feel rested. And actually, that raises the specter of sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So apnea is a complete cessation of breathing. Mm -hmm. And this can happen hundreds of times an hour. And so if you look at the sleep EEG, instead of a nice histogram where people are cycling through the different stages of sleep, you just see awakening, 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 awakening over and over and over again. But people don't remember those awakenings. But the truth is every time you can't breathe, your brain, your brain has to arouse, right? So sleep is very fragmented. Those people are exhausted, but they're not aware of all these awakenings they're having. And that's become real common because apnea and obesity go hand in hand, especially for men who tend to carry their weight up higher, including around their neck. Anything that collapses your airway is a risk factor for apnea. So, I mean, certainly some people just have genetically small airways or pro- other problems, but it's, it's becoming more and more common because we're getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier mm-hmm. in, in our society. And, um, and so if you put them on something like CPAP, which is what you wear that mask, yep. you know, which is not the best looking device in the world, but essentially your airway is being blown open with this continuous positive airway pressure, and that's allowing your brain to... Because every time you stop breathing, obviously, your brain is not getting oxygen at all. Right. And so it's, it's giving the brain the oxygen it needs, it's improving sleep, and people tend to rebound and, and feel a lot better in their performance. It's a lot mm-hmm. better as well. So, but that's not to say that there aren't people out there on the extreme tails, but there's a reason they're like two and three standard deviations from the mean. You haven't found them yet, right? <laughs> yeah, I haven't found them yet. Yeah, if a lot of people want to be, you know, Thomas Edison, who supposedly only needed four hours a night, what they don't know is he was an inveterate napper, right? So, and if he was taking about a 90-minute 90 90 nap a day, he might have been closer to, who knows, six hours, which is well within the range of mm-hmm. what I would consider uh, still a little rare, but normal. Mm-hmm. I saw that you have a paper in press at the journal experimental brain research and i want to make sure i read the title correctly laugh yourself to sleep memory consolidation for humorous humorous information and that begs the question to me if someone doesn't get one of your jokes can you just say <laughs> go sleep on it yeah. and it's going to make well, a, lot, a lot more sense to you when you well, wake maybe. up well maybe yeah that's actually already published oh, so that... if it still say tracking is in press that's a bad sign that either means if it's from my website my students haven't updated it <laughs> Or there's something wrong with PubMed. We'll just blame it on me that I wrote it down. But, I mean, actually, uh, that would be fabulous. If, I mean, maybe that would make people think I was more humorous. But, you know, the reason we did that study is because a big part of what my lab um, is still doing, what was really looking at in the past, was the relationship between sleep and both emotion regulation and memory for the negative. Because those are they're really key concepts to understand when it comes to memory in the brain. But it's also important when it comes to clinical issues like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, other mental health conditions where there are problems with sleep, there are problems with cognition, also problems with stress, which is another you know, key variable that I study. So we spent a lot of time showing the relationship between sleep and negative emotional information. So I had a wonderful student. She's now at, um, uh, I think it's called Central North Central College. It's in, it's in um, Chicago. 
this is probably a sign of my baby-induced sleep deprivation that I can't remember. But she's, uh, she's actually, she came into the lab and said, we need to look at positive. <laughs> and so we found that the relationship is, I mean, so sleep does seem to preferentially benefit emotional information, and that's especially the case for negative, and to a lesser degree, it's, it's true for positive as well. That's good. It's good to have positive, Right, it's too. good to have both. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a big debate yeah. over, you know, what's the most important, you know, positive or negative, and what's the most important to be attuned to, what's the most important to remember, and... You know, I fight, fall squarely on the side of it is important to remember the negative. I mean, if you look at our ancestors, if you even think about what we need to monitor in our environment and remember, it's very important not to get killed, right? Sure. That's <laughs> if right. the species going to survive. That's why certain people evolved. They, they figured That's out right. what they had to avoid. Exactly. So yeah. but it's also important to, you know, find the right mates. And mm-hmm. So it's not that positive isn't important. I just think that if you mess up on the negative domain and you forget that a saber-toothed tiger is dangerous or that this berry is poisonous, you're done. Right. You know, you a lot may bigger be consequences. To, right. You may be yeah. able to endure a few social gaps and still find a mate. So, but that's debated. A lot of people yeah. think that the brain really is, you know, going to sort of give equal equal priority to both positive and negative. And sleep seems to benefit both, but it's a it's a clearer, stronger relationship for negative. There's there's no exception. Humor is interesting though because that's a positive emotion that's also high arousal. Mm-hmm. So emo- emotions also d- divided often divided into these sort of two axes where there's valence on one side which is positive to negative with neutral in the middle and then there's arousal which is how sort of you know energized or excitable Mm -hmm. you can feel it in your body like Mm -hmm. you can you can shake when you're falling in love and you can shake when you're really afraid right right Right. and so it's almost like more of a physical um component of the emotion it's part of the problem is it's hard to find things that are really positive and really arousing Mm -hmm. you know and especially if you're trying to get you know 164 stimuli Right. It's easy to find horrible pictures that, you know, will make you sweat a little bit, that make your heart beat faster. It's hard to find as many that are positive. You mentioned it there. I mean, we've been focusing so far really on sleep, but you right. study sleep and stress mm-hmm. and how they influence memory and psychological function and things like that. Is the relationship, is it a similar kind of thing? too much stress and too little sleep, do they both have a similar kind of impact on the way we function? You know, in some respects, yes. And in some respects, no. But yeah, there are, I'm very interested in how they interact. So clearly they're intertwined, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know mm-hmm. that because if, if you've had a night of insomnia, what caused it? It's normally high stress, a bad day at work, real high stress. Right. What a lot of people don't know is that very high levels of stress, and if you secrete a lot of cortisol, which is a primary stress hormone, that, you know... Is sleep deprivation is something that makes you secrete that. So sleep deprivation itself is a stressor. Just like, you know, stress leads to poor sleep. Poor sleep leads to increased levels of stress, high levels of stress. So they go hand in hand. And so we're really interested in how they interact with cognition to help us understand things like depression and anxiety disorders. You know, we know that there's a... I just said remembering the negative is important, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also... It's easy to have too much of a good thing where you become overly sensitized. Sure. To all the negative in your environment. And that can lead to anxiety on one hand and depression on the other. We know that happens in these disorders. We know sleep gets messed up in these disorders. We know stress regulation gets up in the, messed up in these, these disorders. And so that's why, you know, I had kind of one branch of my research that's really looking at these straight-up cognitive neuroscience questions. How do these things operate in the brain? What bearing to sleep stress yeah. hormones have on how we remember things? But the other side has really got a, a more clinical focus, which is what... What might we be able to understand about these interrelationships between sleep, stress, and memory, for example, that will help us tailor new um, or develop and tailor new treatments, essentially, right. for, for mental health disorders. So that's why I'm cross-listed in the program as clinical and CBB. Well, I mean, it, it's really 
just on a personal note for me, it's very interesting to me because I have generalized anxiety disorder. Oh, okay. And I know from just my own experience living with that, if I am more tired, yes. my ability to kind of have that mental flexibility to bounce back from something that might trigger the anxiety or whatever else, it's significantly it's diminished. Fresh. And I can notice it on a day-by-day basis of, boy, I really didn't get enough sleep because of my kids, God love them, or the mm-hmm. two dogs that got me up. And it's, while my brain doesn't feel like it is as adept at rolling with the punches today right. that it might be on a different and day. And that's because it's it's not. You right. know, I mean, one of my colleagues, Matt Walker, who's at Berkeley now, he, he actually did this really interesting study where he looked at people's ability to remember positive, neutral, and negative information. Uh, but he tests them either across a good night of sleep or a night of sleep deprivation. And what he found was that there was this real, like, almost over-preference for remembering the negative information. And that corresponded to a really unique feature um, of the brain where the bilateral amygdala, and the amygdala is part of your brain that's really important for processing emotion, especially negative emotion, was really sort of hyper-activated. Mm-hmm. And in part, we think this is because when you get a good night of sleep, you have, a, you have amygdala activation as your brain tries to sort through a lot of the emotional things that happen to you during the day, but it happens with parts of your medial prefrontal cortex and another region that's sort of part of that called the anterior cingulate that are more recently evolved, you know, in humans and in other primates, and that we know actually one of the roles that part of the brain plays is to put a break on the amygdala, so it's really, you can think of it as one of the emotion regulation centers of the brain. Mm -hmm. So that naturally happens when you get a good night of sleep. When you don't, the idea is your amygdala kind of runs amok. And that makes you much more susceptible right. to anxiety and other forms of, um, you know, negative processing and stress. So you're right. You're sort of at a biological disadvantage, and you become very emotionally label, labile, which, mm-hmm. you know, usually takes a negative track, but can, you know, people can sometimes get really slap happy and crazy, right. too. Right? right. So that sounds like it's the kind of thing that it's that same process with that regulation would go on in anyone's brain, but mm-hmm. then with someone who has a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder because they're already more sensitive to those things to begin with, it's just that much more heightened? Well, I mean, that's what we're trying to understand, is sort of what we know, yeah, what you just said is real classic. If you're not getting the sleep you need, everybody becomes more emotionally labile. People who already have anxiety tend to actually become more anxious. But here's here's another thing that's interesting. For a long time, if you were getting diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, especially if you're getting diagnosed with, say, major depression disorder, they ask you, are you having... Have you experienced any changes in your weight? Have you gotten heavier or lighter? Have you gained weight or lost weight? Are you having any trouble with your sleep? Are you sleeping more or less? And that's just, it's a symptom. You know, they check the box, and it was viewed as a symptom. But now we know, if you look at, so take the case of, you know, depression, if you if you actually are looking at a person over time, they'll often start to experience problems with sleep before they have a depressive episode. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, sleep isn't sleep problems aren't just a symptom of depression. They may very well be causal. Or at least what we call prodromal. There may be something going on that if you were to treat the sleep before it happened, you may be able to rescue that person for, you know, having a relapse or maybe even getting into that initial depression Mm -hmm. in the beginning. Hard to separate out what is is stress or sleep, what's going to have the bigger impact on... Because they go together. I mean, it's real hard to find somebody who's suffering from insomnia that isn't highly, highly stressed. I mean, even Mm -hmm. if you just look at their, you know, sort of diurnal rhythm of cortisol... Mm-hmm. Where you're looking at their cortisol during the day, you know it's disrupted. So that's 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 the whole point. You know, if there right. are disruptions, if you look at conditions like anxiety and depression, there are disruptions in the stress regulation system. So cortisol is weird, mm-hmm. you know, to put it, I guess, in a very overgeneralized way. 
sleep is messed up yeah. in a whole various right. type, you know, various types of ways. And then there are all of these cognitive and emotional processing problems where, you know, yeah, people are experiencing really low mood. They're experiencing very high anxiety. They're, you know, selectively processing the things that make them anxious. In the case of generalized anxiety disorder, it starts to generalize from one thing to the next mm-hmm. to the next to the next. Um, so it is. That's part of what we're trying to do is understand. And I don't think it's going to have the arrow is going to only point in one direction, right? right? I mean, I don't. I think it's going to be. They're going to be pointing all over the right. place. Which, which is what's good about that is that if, if it is sort of, you know, a complex relationship where yeah, poor sleep is causing, you know, both anxiety and higher stress and mm-hmm. vice versa, then maybe we can intervene in any one of those areas or try to have a three-part mm-hmm. intervention process where we te- teach people sort of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and relaxation exercises or mindfulness meditation. Uh, to you know, get them out of unhealthy cognitions and to bring down stress hormones and teach them healthy sleep hygiene or even in certain cases give them particular sleep medications, at least in the short run, then we may actually be able to target it better. Right. Um, so I guess that's the good news is maybe we can target one of those places hoping that it will interact with the other two right. or better yet, let's tackle all three at the same time. Right. I don't know how um, unique it is because you're talking about kind of going back and forth between the the clinical aspect and the cognitive aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, What drew you to this research? Because it's one of, I know as an outsider looking at it and saying, Oh, who would be a good person to talk to on a podcast? It's so eminently relatable to everyone. I mean, it affects everyone. So what was it that said, Oh yeah, this is why I want, this is what I'm going to study. Well, here's the interesting thing about it. Now I am actually a poor sleeper and that has nothing to do it. We usually say, you know, research is me-search. Right. But that's actually not how I got into this at all. I got into this, you know, I was in graduate school studying memory, and especially a process called memory consolidation, which is the process by which you take new information and store it in the long run mm-hmm. so you don't forget it right away. And that co- consolidation process can take a long time, you know, from hours to even longer. And I was studying the role that stress hormones play in our, you know, ability to remember things emotional, negative, neutral, and also develop false memories for things. So I was really not even thinking about sleep. Then, one of my best friends at the time who was working in a sleep lab, so Richard Bootson is like a, you know, grandfather of what's called stimulus control, which is part of healthy sleep hygiene. That's the idea is you only want to be in your bedroom for sleep and sex, and really you shouldn't be studying in there, and you shouldn't be working on your computer in there. It really should be something you and your brain associate with healthy sleep. And she was working for him, and there was a sleep lab, and he taught a course, and I decided to take it and realized that sleep also played a role in the processing and consolidation of memories. And I actually got into it because I became fascinated by an idea, um, which I published, actually. It became sort of a, a fledgling theory when I was in, in graduate school that, that maybe our dreams were a window into the memory consolidation process, and that maybe one of the reasons they were so bizarre was that during the part of the sleep cycle that's rich in rapid eye movement sleep, which happens toward the end of the night. So the beginning of the night is dominated by that deep, slow wave sleep that we talked about that's so difficult to wake out of. The latter part of the night toward awakening is dominated by rapid eye movement sleep. And so I was very curious about maybe we're processing and consolidating memories all night, but when you wake somebody up during rapid eye movement sleep, they'll often report these crazy, bizarre, fragmented, but sometimes kind of creative dreams Mm -hmm. Because they're not processing memories in the same way that we do when we're awake or even that we do during slow wave sleep when we're sort of just replaying them to help consolidate them. But during rapid eye movement sleep, in part due to these very high cortisol levels and in part 
due to um, facts like the another part of your frontal lobe, the dorsolateral part of your medial, or the dorsolateral part of your frontal lobe, is actually deactivated during rapid eye movement sleep, and that's sort of the center of executive control that tells you, you know, you can't fly, <laughs> you can't walk through that wall, and you shouldn't put these crazy concepts right. together. But in REM sleep, it's sort of you know all bets are off. You're allowed right. to do whatever you want and test right. reality in all sorts of different ways, and sometimes that just leads to create you know really crazy dreams, but sometimes <laughs> highly creative insights and ideas. So. So I put together this, this sort of theory that put together, you know, these ideas about the processing of memories in different neural hormonal environments, with the central idea being that there were these multiple factors, including this deactivated prefrontal cortex, but also really very high levels of cortisol, because cortisol peaks around the time of awakening, which, which means it's high in that latter part of the night when you're predominantly in rapid eye movement mm-hmm. sleep. So maybe we can, you know, talk about how, you know, maybe th- these factors actually can help us understand what dreams even are. Mm-hmm. And what they are are ripped apart, fragmented memories that we then can kind of put together, put back together in really novel ways. Mm-hmm. So um, it, was really a, it was really just a, an interest in memory consolidation and kind of a crazy idea about a new theory of dreaming, a new neurobiological behavior, you know, right. theory of dreaming. Yes, and more coffee, yeah, thank you. That's the, fascinating. The, the, and that, yeah. actually, so yeah, I mean, I was really all ready to go do a postdoc looking at stress and stress hormones, and, and actually, this has changed my whole yeah. career track. So what yeah. happened is I'd, I'd met um, another sort of, you know, like, the, I think one of the godfathers of, of, of sleep and memory, Bob Stickgold, who was at Harvard, and I just changed gears mm-hmm. and ended up going to Boston, working with him, and the rest is history. Do you still do anything with dreams specifically? I do, actually. Yeah. So I have, you know, it takes a, a brave student to want to do research on dreaming because, <laughs> in fact, I was told don't study it until you have tenure because you're going to look crazy and very not scientific. <laughs> so we've done a little bit with it, yeah. but it, I haven't had a, a lot of students who want to look at that. And at this point, students, at least in part, really drive the research program. And I will get back yeah. to that. That's a goal is by the time yeah. I retire, I will have gone back mm-hmm. to studying well, I can't even say I've studied dreaming. It was just an idea that I published. Right. I haven't actually directly studied right. dreams very much myself at all. Um, but but by the time I retire, I'll have come yeah. back to that because I find it fascinating. You're a Cavalry fellow now, so you can, <laughs> exactly. so you can do that if you want to. <laughs> exactly. Jessica Payne, this has been a pleasure. Please please enjoy your lunch. Right, well, I'm going to do the for, same now. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me. Yeah. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast.